Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and today we begin part two of our season, Fake News, Fact-Checking Hollywood Babylon. This isn't news. This is totally unfounded gossip. It's a long way from Hollywood. Criticized for dealing too frankly with such themes as sex and nudity. Hollywood. Babylon. If you haven't listened to part one of this series, you should go back and do so. But here's the gist. Hollywood Babylon is a book published by Kenneth Anger, a child actor turned experimental filmmaker turned pioneer in a form of Hollywood gossip that verges on conspiracy theory. Anger spent the 1940s and 1950s drifting between various inner circles and marginalized subgroups in and around Hollywood. And as such, he came to hear a lot of versions of scandalous Hollywood stories that ran counter to or went further than the accepted narratives of these events. By the late 1950s, Anger was living in Paris and, in need of money, he started writing up for Cahiers de Cinema magazine some of the stories that he had heard through what amounted to a Hollywood party game of telephone. Anger eventually compiled these articles into a book, which paired usually partially fantasized or at the very least embellished versions of true stories with sometimes grotesque, often surreal, or all-too-real photos, some from crime scenes and others from Hollywood still galleries. Thus, this book, titled Hollywood Babylon, blurred the line between real and fake. It purported to offer a secret, suppressed, true history, while also celebrating the hyper-real or super-real nature of Hollywood myth-making. Though in their rough shape, the stories in Hollywood Babylon usually hew to verifiable facts, many of the details the book includes are simply inaccurate. The book was initially published in France in 1959, but it was not widely commercially available in the U.S. until 1975, by which point the studio system had crumbled, as had many formerly respectable American icons and institutions. And it was the perfect time for Anger's exaggerations and potentially libelous statements and insinuations to be accepted as the long-hidden truth. One of the reasons why so much misinformation still circulates about classic Hollywood, other than that the studios put so much of it out there, is that books by self-proclaimed experts such as Anger were not fact-checked before publishing and could not be fact-checked in real time by their readers because not only was there no internet, but there were few reliable texts of any kind covering the stories he wrote about. Over 40 years later, it's much easier to spot the things Anger got wrong, whether it's honest and basically meaningless mistakes that having access to Wikipedia or IMDb would have cleared up, or more serious instances of rumors and urban legends clouding the truth. It also becomes apparent that in some cases, Anger has a tendency to skew the truth according to his own biases and interests. And then there are other stories that Anger gets incredibly right, or even stops short of exaggerating or eviscerating a subject when he easily could have. 
In the first half of this season, we had special celebrity guests reading from the pages of Hollywood Babylon. This season, we are looking to the post-celebrity future, in which all actors will be replaced by digital replicas, and all big-name podcast guests will be generated by artificial intelligence. So here is the anger bot, reading an edited excerpt from Hollywood Babylon. May West rode into Hollywood with a reputation as the bad girl of Broadway for plays like Sex, which got her into hot water and eight days of jail. Paramount's move in signing May was a gamble that paid off. Her first starring film, She'd Done Him Wrong, which she adapted from her own play Diamond Lil, broke box office records for 1933. It took him $2 million in three months and saved the studio from bankruptcy. Disapprobation of May's fun-loving views on sex came spewing forth from Cardinal Montalain of Chicago. The Cardinal ordered one of his professional prigs, the Reverend Daniel A. Lord, to pen a pamphlet, The Motion Pictures Betray America, in which Catholic youth was urged to boycott the obnoxious pictures of May West. The Catholic sodality were so gratified at the response that they decided to put their anti-sex boycott on a national level. The National Legion of Decency was formed in October 1933, six months after the release of She Done Him Wrong. The Legion heavy cited the menace May West represented as one of the major reasons for the necessity of their organization. May followed She Done Him Wrong with her most successful picture, I'm No Angel. May's war with the Super Censors started in earnest the summer of 1934, when the new guardians of America's virtue pounced on her way of handling a gangster. Is that a gun in your pocket, or are you just glad to see me? While Belle of the 90s was in production, the Hayes office had stationed a watchdog on the set to oversee May's lines and movements. To bug this blue nose, May thought up a little prank. She invented an imaginary kidnapping threat and kept herself surrounded by a squad of bodybuilder bodyguards who followed her right into her luxurious dressing room between takes. While the watchdog fumed, May hung out a do not disturb sign except in case of fire. William Randolph Hearst got into the act in 1936 when a crack May made about his sacrosanct lady, Marion, provoked his ire. Singling out Klondike Annie as a target, the Hearst papers denounced May as a monster of lubricity and a menace to the sacred institution of the American family. He added, Is it not time Congress did something about May West? Hearst was pissed off by a remark of May's about Marion's acting ability. He gave orders to ban ads for her films in all of his papers. Hearst and the Legion doggedly goaded the Hayes office to harass her during production of Every Day's a Holiday. Hearst then conspired with Breen to publish in Quigley's motion picture Herald a list of stars that exhibitors allegedly considered box office poison. This bogus blacklist was designed to oust in one swoop disobedient players and those who, victims of gossip or the censor's caprice, were considered undesirable. The page-long blacklist featured such difficult subjects as Catherine Hepburn and Fred Astaire, and such scarlet women as Marlene Dietrich and Mae West. The truth was that Mae's pictures were still doing fine, but the smear took its toll. When her contract came up for renewal in 1938 after the bedeviled every day's a holiday was in the can, Paramount copped out and let the prigs have the last word. Anger's primary claim is that Mae West's career was brought down by a coordinated effort between William Randolph Hearst, various Catholics, and the Hayes office and that this was the origin of the box office poison list. Anger insists that this all happened because Hearst was protecting the honor of his mistress, Marion Davies. As you might suspect, a review of the on-the-record facts in this case suggests that Anger's conspiracy theory is an easy explanation for Mae West's downfall, but it may not be the most accurate explanation. Join us, won't you, for our fact-checking 
of Hollywood Babylon Story of Mae West. Be kind to your mind with guided meditations from the Meditation for Women podcast. Your mental health benefits from sleeping better, releasing anxiety, and gaining clarity, all of which are benefits of meditation. And since this is Mental Health Awareness Month, give yourself the gift of meditations. All you have to do is press play and close your eyes. Listen to Meditation for Women on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Mae West is remembered as a wise-cracking master of sexual innuendo, whose walk was more like a trot, and who ultimately became synonymous with a larger-than-life parody of female sexual liberation. But it's important to place Mae in the context of her time and understand the extent to which she embodied a city creature as urban American life became a hot topic of the popular culture consumed by those who lived in less populated areas. She represented the blurry line between working-class people, walking the straight and narrow, and an easily glamorized underworld. Her characters often lived out a Cinderella-style story, transforming from a low social position to a high one, and taking on the clothes and jewels and romantic glory associated with the new status but without changing her inherent streetwise, tough-talking character. May was born in Brooklyn in 1893, about seven years before what she usually gave as her birth date, and she began appearing on stage in amateur talent shows as a small child. She would sing and do impressions of well-known vaudeville personalities. By her mid-teens, her act had become pretty racy. She would do a fan dance, her naked body covered with sparkling powder and hidden behind a giant fan. As her body shook, the powder would rise up off her body, fill the air, and fall on the people sitting in the first few rows of the audience. It was said to be highly thrilling. In 1911, when she was 17, May married Frank Wallace, a dancer with whom she was then doing a show. Wallace and West had put together an act singing and dancing to ragtime songs in conscious imitation of black performers who they had seen in Harlem. Neither the marriage, which May kept secret until the truth came out after she was famous, nor the act lasted long. May spent the next few years touring vaudeville theaters as a solo act. By the late 19-teens, her act had stagnated a bit, and her prospects had dimmed. But the end of World War I brought a boom-time decadence to New York City, in which May West thrived. In 1918, she became notorious for performing The Shimmy, a dance she had picked up in African-American nightclubs on the south side of Chicago and brought to the comparatively lily-white atmosphere of Broadway. Mae West shimmying was a sensation, and she rode this wave for about four years before her career started to stall out again for a lack of new material. She came to realize that she couldn't wait for someone else to cast her in the perfect play or review. She would need to generate her own material. Broadway at this time was in the middle of a tug of war between an audience that was demonstrably thirsty for plays about crime and sex, making prostitution the hot topic of the 1921 Broadway season, and a wave of censorship-minded religiosity that rose to meet the trend. By 1923, when she turned 30, Mae West's career was totally stalled, and when she was looking to revive it, she understood two things. That no one was going to generate star-making material for her, so she would have to do it for herself, and that realist plays about the seamier side of life were a surefire path 
to attention. She saw this in Broadway sensations like Rain, based on the Somerset Mom short story and starring Jean Eagles, and in the plays of Eugene O'Neill. She also must have been aware that women like Clara Bow and Gloria Swanson had become superstars in the movies, playing sexually liberated women. Later, she offered a simple defense for what she saw as a simple business decision. People want dirt in plays, so I give it to them. She had been playing around with writing for a few years and wrote a couple of plays that were never produced. And then came sex. The impetus to write a play like Sex, about a worker in a brothel who rises from the lowest rung of her profession to the top of high society, proving herself to be a better person than many of the rich hypocrites she encounters there, came from a night when May observed a streetwalker strolling down the waterfront on the west side of Manhattan with two sailors, one on each side. The woman's clothes were cheap and ratty, but she was wearing a brand new hat, which May assumed had been freshly purchased by one of her two sailor dates. May began imagining the squalid circumstances of a woman who sold sexual services to sailors on New York's waterfront for 50 cents a pop. And then she imagined how such a woman could turn her circumstances around, not to find another profession, but to combine street smarts and business smarts to, one by one, replace her shabby things with new things, and eventually become the best and highest-earning practitioner of her trade imaginable. She wasn't trying to necessarily make a piece of art that elevated prostitution. She wanted to use the lure of a play about a lady of the evening to tell an Horatio Alger story about a woman. In other words, sex wasn't about sex as much as it was about money and a woman succeeding in the capitalist system that men designed and that would usually otherwise oppress her. And behind the scenes, May figured out how to manipulate the system, buying an advantage that her previous efforts at playwriting hadn't enjoyed. The structure of sex was based on a play called Following the Fleet by a man named J.J. Byrne, who sold his play to May for $300 in 1924. When sex became a hit, Byrne attempted to sue for piracy, with his complaint citing the fact that in making the sex worker the heroine, West had perverted the moral center of his play. A judge threw his case out of court. Sex the Play was raunchy for the day, and May's performance leaned into an almost self-mockingly lurid depiction of sexuality. The most shocking scene to many was a belly dance May performed in the second act, which was notable both for her advanced grinding and the exposure of her navel. Variety's reviewer declared that the play was so dirty and so blatantly a ploy for publicity that the trade publication vowed, quote, not to cover its filth. But another reporter at Variety was charmed by May, who he affectionately dubbed the Babe Ruth of stage prosties. The play was initially cleared by Broadway censors, but reformers continued to bang the gong. At first, this only succeeded in keeping sex in the news. A year into its run, it was still pulling in as much as $10,000 a week in 1927 dollars, which is about $150,000 a week in 2018 dollars. But then the city of New York decided to act, and May, her boyfriend-slash-lawyer-slash-manager James Timoney, and 22 others associated with sex were arrested on charges of corrupting the morals of youth 
and others. May and her cohorts easily paid their own bail. By now, May had already set her sights on her follow-up, a play called The Drag, about a love triangle between two men and a woman set against the drag subculture, featuring what the play's publicity claimed were 40 young men from Greenwich Village. In other words, actual New York drag queens. May later said the theme of the play was live and let love. But she had conflicted feelings about homosexuality. She was friends with many gay men and drag queens, but she also believed that while some people experimented in search of what she disparagingly referred to as cheap thrills, in other cases, homosexuality was a disease that could be cured. The way she writes about gayness in the context of the drag in her autobiography is pretty viciously homophobic. In many ways, homosexuality is a danger to the entire social system of Western civilization. She writes, I had no objection to it as a cult of jaded inverts involved only with themselves. It was its secret antisocial aspects I wanted to bring into the sun. The drag treated seriously the problem of the homosexual and showed how his abnormal tendencies brought disaster to his family, his friends, and himself. It was the drag that first attracted the negative attention of William Randolph Hearst to May and her work. He published an editorial in his paper, The New York American which called for censorship to prevent works like the drag, which exhibited, quote, the foulest use of sex perversion for dirty dollars. This led to so much outcry that Actors' Equity and the Theater Guild refused to support the play, and no theater in New York would book it. After a few preview shows in Connecticut, the drag disappeared. Meanwhile, May was put on trial on the charges related to sex, and the show closed, finally, in part because ticket sales had finally waned, and in part because the defense team believed the trial might go their way if shutting down the show was a non-issue. But the jury found cast and crew guilty of indecency. While 21 cast members were given suspended sentences, May and her two backers received $500 fines and 10 days in jail. May was released after nine days due to good behavior. Upon release, May mounted a new play, The Wicked Age, in which the now 34-year-old played an adolescent flapper. May believed that her stint in jail had bought her invaluable publicity, But the Wicked Age was an ill-conceived venture, and almost everything that could have gone wrong did. It lasted just 19 performances. She got back on track with her next effort, Diamond Lil, which became an instant hit when it opened on Broadway in April 1928. Again, here May was calculating and commercially mercenary. She wrote a vehicle for herself, set in a bar on Manhattan's Bowery just before the turn of the century, specifically for its cross-demographic and generational appeal, which would allow her to wed her contemporary sexual humor to the costumes and perceived safety of the past. Mae West would always essentially play Mae West, but as Diamond Lil, she savvily connected her persona to the Mae West of her parents' generation, Lillian Russell, a voluptuous feminist singer and actress who was as famous for her unconventional romantic relationships as she was for her performance style. Mae's personal life was exceedingly busy while she was playing Lil. 
As she bragged in her autobiography, she was juggling affairs with her lawyer and a Frenchman, with whom, on a certain Saturday, she went through, as she put it, a dozen rubber things, 22 times. I was sort of tired. She does not explain the discrepancy between these numbers. May was also having a dalliance with George Raft, a future star of Hollywood gangster movies who, in the late 20s, was a dancer running around New York with close ties to real crooks and mobsters. May and Raft would stay friends for much of the rest of their lives. And three years later, Raft would recommend May to Paramount for her first film role in his picture, Night After Night. May arrived in Hollywood, not exactly the triumphant rebel Anger describes. Between the actual triumph of Diamond Lil and her arrival in Hollywood in 1932, May had attempted to mount two additional plays, one of which, The Pleasure Man, had inspired another obscenity trial, and the other, The Constant Sinner about interracial love, was well-received and not protested by censors or authorities, but it hit Broadway during the absolute bottom of the Depression slump. She was broke and not exactly overflowing with her usual self-confidence. Her beloved mother had just died, and where she had generated her own material and dictated her own career path for years in New York, now she was arriving in Los Angeles dependent on a sometime boyfriend for a job. Though a couple of studios had shown interest in paying her to make a movie out of one of her plays, the Hayes office had preemptively put Sex, Pleasure Man, and Diamond Lil on a list of plays banned from screen adaptation. And when she actually landed in Los Angeles, it seemed that no one cared enough about her bad reputation to even report on it. Those that were persuaded by Paramount's publicity department to interview May weren't impressed. Luella Parsons described West in 1932 as fat, fair, and I don't know how near 40. Hollywood, May later recalled, gave me the biggest frozen handshake I'd had in years. Paramount, however, thought highly enough of May that when she objected to the script for Night After Night and offered to return her salary and go back to New York rather than read dialogue she hated, the studio put her to work rewriting it. May West was not the star of Night After Night, but Night After Night made her a movie star, and its success and the public's instant response to May convinced Paramount that being in business with her was worth the risks cited by anger in Hollywood Babylon. An adaptation of Diamond Lil was put into production. To get around the ban that the Hayes office had placed on the play, Paramount ordered a number of key changes. The house of prostitution in which the play was set would now be a dance hall. May's character's name was changed from Lil to Lou, and the title was changed to She Done Him Wrong. The most shocking thing to most modern first-time viewers of She Done Him Wrong is the power dynamic in it between Mae West and Cary Grant. May frequently claimed that she handpicked Cary Grant as her co-star. This may have been true, but she picked him out of a small sample pool. He was a Paramount contract player who had appeared in half a dozen films when May first spotted him, including as Marlena Dietrich's playboy love interest in Blonde Venus. But he was not yet a star. His two films opposite Mae West made him one, in part because he was just that, her opposite. Dark and slim where she was blonde and buxom, buttoned up where she was loose. He was her straight man, 
as well as the ingenue to which she directed her lustful gaze. I always did like a man in a uniform. And that one fits you grand. I should come up sometimes, see me. I'm home every evening. Yeah, but I'm busy every evening. Busy? So what are you trying to do, insult me? No, no, not at all. I'm just busy, that's all. You see, we're holding meetings in Jacobson's Hall every evening. Anytime you have a moment to spare, I'll be glad to have you drop in. You're more than welcome. I heard you. But you ain't kidding me any. You know, I met your kind before. Why don't you come up sometime, huh? Well, I... Don't be afraid. I won't tell. But, uh... Come up. I'll tell your fortune. Oh, you can be had. Contrary to Anger's claim that she'd done him wrong saved Paramount from bankruptcy, the studio was already in receivership when it was released, and two years later, the studio would still file for bankruptcy. But the movie did gross $2 million, which made it the 10th biggest moneymaker of the year. Not bad for a film of indeterminate genre, which featured no established stars, in the middle of the Depression. It also became one of 10 nominees for Best Picture, despite the fact that its quality was a subject of rancorous dispute. Though Paramount had made cuts to the film based on the recommendations of the Hayes office, local censorship boards further excised portions of the movie that they found unacceptable. But the box office numbers were powerful evidence that something was working. So when Catholics like Father Daniel Lord wrote to Will Hayes in dismay, Hayes, knowing that his own job security depended on there being a thriving film industry to employ him, was able to point to the profits as evidence that the film wasn't wholly objectionable to large numbers of Americans. Powerful Catholic movie magazine publisher Martin Quigley, one of the ghost authors of The Hayes Code, likewise held short of calling for a ban or a boycott of She Done Him Wrong. As Hayes Code enforcer Joseph Breen admitted in 1932, these are no days to quit a job. Nor were they days to bite off the hands that fed you. This was how the pre-code era often worked. Filmmakers would put as much sex and violence into their movies as they wanted, knowing the Hayes Code would demand some changes. The censors could then publicly show they were cleaning up the movies, but they knew they couldn't clean them up too much, or else the economic underpinnings of the whole system would fall apart. There would be outcry from some reformers about some movies, but not enough to gum up the works. That changed with May's next picture, I'm No Angel, which again paired May with Cary Grant, and again served as a showcase for the writer-performer's gift for dialogue implicitly turning her character's sexual power into a source of comedy. Uh, you were wonderful tonight. I'm always wonderful at night. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but tonight you were especially good. Well, when I'm good, I'm very good. But when I'm bad, I'm better. James Wingate, who was running the Hayes operation at the time, requested a few minor cuts to the I'm No Angel script. But otherwise, he gave the film a pass. It was released with the Hayes office's understanding that it was likely to be a box office smash. And it was. I'm No Angel leapfrogged over She Done Him Wrong to become the fourth highest grossing movie of 1933. Within her first full year in Hollywood, May had not just starred in, but helped to generate the material for two of the biggest blockbusters of the year. No star in 1933 could say the same, even though Dick Powell and Ruby Keeler also appeared in two of the year's biggest hits, Gold Diggers of 1933 and 42nd Street. The real star of those films was Busby Berkeley's choreography. More than the actual content of I'm No Angel, it is likely that May's massive success 
and the power she had so swiftly accrued as a woman who made money for the industry, peddling ideas of female liberation, and walking the walk by writing those films herself and not just serving as the face for a male fantasy of the new woman, that caused her critics to mount a campaign to bring her down. Anger is right that Mae West's first two starring vehicles, She Done Him Wrong and I'm No Angel, were released without serious interference from the censors, and that she faced her first real roadblocks with the release of her third film, released as Belle of the 90s. But her troubles had nothing to do with this line. Oh, is that a gun in your pocket or are you just glad to see me? This phrase didn't appear in any Mae West film from 1934, or in any Mae West film at all until her final effort, Sextet, which was not released until after Hollywood Babylon was published. There is some evidence that the line originated as a joke that Mae made to one of her bodyguards, but this wouldn't have been anything the Hayes office could have jumped into action to do anything about. Anger also weirdly misses the role I'm No Angel played in changing the censorship picture, not just for May, but for everyone in Hollywood. Father Lord's pamphlet The Motion Pictures Betray America insisted that movies had become infected with a whole philosophy of evil, which he ascribed to the pants pressers that had ascended from $15 a week jobs to the control of tremendous motion picture companies. In other words, uppity Jews were ruining it for everyone. This anti-Semitic dog whistle clearly implicated men like Paramount Chief Adolf Zucker and May's personal Paramount minder, Emmanuel Cohen, rather than creative talents like May but it was part of a wave of activity that occurred immediately after the release of I'm No Angel and before production of May's next film, Bell of the 90s. Catholics formed a new entity called the Legion of Decency, specifically to protest the salacious motion picture, inspiring churches to ask their parishioners to sign a pledge that read in part... I condemn absolutely those debauching motion pictures which, with other degrading agencies, are corrupting public morals and promoting a sex mania in our land. Considering these evils, I hereby promise to remain away from all motion pictures, except those which do not offend decency and Christian morality. And it wasn't just Catholics. Some Protestants and Jews had aligned themselves with the cause, too. Code officer James Wingate got demoted and was replaced by Joseph Breen, himself a Catholic who shared the agenda of the protesters and would not let Hollywood internal politics keep him from enforcing the code. The moguls, vulnerable from the personal religious attacks that had already been lobbed and worried about a boycott that would endanger their livelihoods and the future of their profession, stopped fighting. Thus, in 1934, the pre-code era ended. This was direct fallout from Wingate's failure to accurately assess I'm No Angel and anticipate the response to the film from religious groups. One of Breen's first actions was to identify films that had been passed by the previous administration, which would now not have been allowed out into the wild. These movies were to be withdrawn from circulation and banned indefinitely. By the time Belle of the 90s was being made, both She Done Him Wrong and I'm No Angel had been put on this list, and Breen was intent on seeing to it that no film of that caliber was made again. Anger's claim that Breen sent a spy to keep an eye on West on set 
seems to have been totally made up. She did have bodyguards, but there was no phony kidnapping claim, and those bodyguards predated Breen's appointment by at least a year. Shortly after arriving on the Paramount lot to shoot night after night, May had been robbed at gunpoint while being driven home one night. $23,000 worth of jewelry and cash were taken, and May eventually learned that her chauffeur had been in cahoots with the thieves. May had testified against the criminals in cooperation with the DA, an action which was surprising to some, given that in her work and in her life, she had previously expressed a friendly attitude towards the underworld. After that, in response to direct threats received by May, claiming that someone was lying in wait, prepared to throw acid in her face, the DA appointed two armed guards to accompany her everywhere she went. If she did disappear with these guards behind a do-not-disturb sign— it had nothing to do with pranking the censors. May acknowledged having an affair with one of the guards, Mike Mazurki, and she ended up getting him a part in the film. But Belle of the 90s was required to submit to heavy editing before it was released. In interviews, May insisted that she didn't think her essential brand had been neutered completely, but audiences were less enthusiastic about Belle than they had been about any of her previous films. Mae West had gone from being the unquestionable, single biggest star of 1933 to being an also-ran in 1934, and Paramount was forced to rethink how to use her talents going forward. So a decision was made to break the Mae West mold and try something else. Klondike Annie was inspired in part by May's writing, including a play she had written in 1921 called Frisco Kate, but the movie had her playing with her image as a sinner. She played a kept woman who kills her master and escapes on a boat from San Francisco to Alaska. On board, she switches identities with a Christian missionary to avoid capture, but then May ends up genuinely devoting herself to the charity. But the film was still full of the usual May West wisecracks. Well, I'm caught between two evils. I generally like to take the one I never tried. Klondike Annie was given a pass by both the Hayes office and the Legion of Decency, but for some reason... William Randolph Hearst decided to use it as a hook for a campaign to take May down by attacking not just her, but also Paramount and Will Hayes. What was the reason? Angers claimed that it had to do with a wisecrack May West had made about Marion Davies doesn't really check out, because there's no record of the wisecrack. There is one theory that the censors were Hearst's real target, that he was mad that they had asked for cuts of a recent film he had produced, Howard Hawks's Ceiling Zero, ceding to pressure from aviation companies such as United Airlines, who didn't like the movie's depiction of their industry. This was a bullshit thing for the censorship board to do, given its stated intentions— and even their unstated intention of protecting the bottom line of the movie industry and no other industry. But it doesn't really explain why Hearst would put Mae West at the center of his campaign and why he would direct all of his papers to so blanket their pages with negative coverage of May and refuse to accept advertising of her films. May's theory... I think Hearst didn't like me because I made almost as much money as he did. He said he didn't like my morals, and there he was, a married man with a mistress. Who was he to throw words at me when he lived in a glass house, even if it was San Simeon? The Hearst assault actually helped Klondike Annie in the short term. Variety credited the editorials with increasing the film's total box office significantly. But this was not the kind of publicity Paramount wanted in 1936. May and her studio had a falling out. 
they refused to set a new picture around her talents. She accused them of breach of contract. They fired her. She called Variety and told them she had quit. This turned out to be just a technicality when May soon thereafter signed a deal with former Paramount exec Emmanuel Cohen, who had set up an independent company with a distribution deal at Paramount. Cohen backed May's next two movies, beginning with Go West, Young Man. This picture began as an adaptation of a play called Personal Appearance, a satire about a sexually voracious actress. By the time Cohen was finished haggling with Joseph Breen, all the satire was lost. The film did okay, but May didn't make another film for a full year. Part of the problem was that she had writer's block. Eventually, she came up with a story borrowing from her greatest hits, another yarn about a bold nightclub singer in a turn-of-the-century Bowery club called Every Day's a Holiday. Contrary to Anger's claims that Hearst prodded the Breen office to pay special attention to the production of this film, it doesn't seem like it was singled out for unusual scrutiny. By now, Breen understood that May always wrote a few punchlines that she knew would get cut, and that no one producing the film would put up much of a fight when these cuts were ordered. The whole thing had devolved into routine. Worse, both reviewers and ticket buyers were bored. Every Day is a Holiday became Mae West's first movie to lose money. As a result, Cohen cut ties with May, leaving her a free agent. She immediately returned to New York and mounted a run of sold-out live shows. It was while she was in the midst of this run that the box office Poison ad debuted. We've talked about this ad before on this podcast. If you're new to the show, you might want to check out episode 10, produced way back in 2014, about Kay Francis, who was a target of this same ad and perhaps its biggest victim because she's become the most obscure female star named in it. A mini-editorial submitted by the Independent Theater Owners Association and credited to a theater owner named Harry Brandt, the ad appeared in The Hollywood Reporter and The Independent Film Journal on May 3, 1938. It cited West, Francis, and a passel of other major stars of the 1930s, including Marlena Dietrich, Greta Garbo, Joan Crawford, and Fred Astaire, as names who had become poison at the box office. The recommendation was that studios drop these high-salaried performers and concentrate on creating vehicles for a newer batch of stars. Shirley Temple, Carol Lombard, and May's quote-unquote discovery, Cary Grant. Kenneth Anger has his timeline wrong. By the time this editorial appeared, Every Day's a Holiday had already been released, and Paramount had already severed ties with May, as had Emmanuel Cohen. And her movies weren't doing fine. Audiences had lost interest in her shtick. May West continued to work until the end of her life, in all aspects of the entertainment industry, but her most potent period of influence on the culture had ended. She was certainly attacked by the censors, but she was not the only performer in that situation, and there's not much evidence that she was the target of a real conspiracy, promoted by William Randolph Hearst or anyone else. The fact is, Mae West was the star of a moment, and that moment only lasted one moment. She was a two-hit wonder who managed to continue to play her hits for 50 years. That in itself was a kind of wonderful revenge. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. This episode was edited by Cameron Drews. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. Special thanks to our special guest, Natasha Leone, who played Mae West. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes for every episode with information about our sources, music used, and much more. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter, at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And my book, Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes's Hollywood, is available now from Amazon or your local independent bookstore. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Let me feel your fingers running through my hair. I can give you kisses till you walk on air. Love me, honey, love me till I just don't care. I'm no angel. Oh, I'll take your blues, stomp down your trumpets. Rock you with a steady ball Here's your connection Take my affection You're mine away soon oh, Let me have you now Before the night is gone Come on, flag this joint So we can carry on I can make it happen Where the shades are drawn 